this is a sort of unprecedented crisis and we need all hands on deck. And there's so much talent out there. The thing, though, that you do need when you have all hands on deck is, uh, you know, there's a guy who's really good at pulling up rigging and that guy shouldn't insist on piloting the ship. everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Enrico Bertini and I am a professor at New York University where I do research and teach data visualization. That's right, and I'm Moritz Stefane. I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. In fact, I work as a self-employed truth and beauty operator out of my office here in the countryside in the north of Germany. Yes, and on this podcast, we talk about data visualization, analysis, and more generally, the role data plays in our lives. And usually we do that together with a guest we invite on the show. Yeah, but before we start, just a quick note. Our podcast is listener-supported. That means there are no ads, which is great. Uh, that also means if you do enjoy the show, you could consider supporting us. You can do that with either recurring payments on patreon.com slash datastories, or you could also send us a one-time donation on paypal.me slash datastories. Yes. So thanks all those of you who are already donating. And uh, if you're listening to this show and you can't, that's totally fine too. Maybe you may want to send uh, every once in a while a message on Twitter or any other social media about data stories and that will be more than enough. So let's get started with the main topic today. So I guess you won't be surprised. <laughs> I think we finally caved in. We are <laughs> going to cover... <laughs> visualizing COVID-19 and um, I'm really excited to have probably the best person we could have on the show. We have Carl Bergstrom on the show. Hi Carl. Hi, how are you doing? Very good. So I'm very happy to have you here and uh, you are probably the person I've been following more closely during these crazy times and uh, You've done a lot of work and I can say that you are both at the same time an expert in uh, epidemiology and in data visualization. And maybe some of our listeners remember that you've been on our show already in the past to talk about bullshit, yes. <laughs> which is really important, right? Seems to be a lot of it going around right now. <laughs> data and bullshit, and there's no shortage of that right now. And uh, you've been so helpful, basically tweeting new information every day and talking about how we should reason about data in these crazy times. <laughs> so we normally ask our guests to briefly introduce themselves. Can you give us a very brief introduction and then we can dive right in? Sure. I'm Carl Bergstrom. I'm a professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Washington. And I've worked on all kinds of things over the years, but I spent a decade working on basically the epidemiology of emerging infectious diseases from about 2000 to about 2010. And uh, my interest there actually pulled me into the directions of network theory and uh, maybe not an expert in data visualization, but at least a, an expert student or something like that, uh, <laughs> a passionate student of the field. And uh, um Anyway, uh, now that we have the current COVID-19 crisis, of course, I've, um, you know, it's like riding a bike. You don't forget how to do this stuff. And I've, uh, you know, dove back in with, with uh, all my time and energy working on, uh, on trying to figure out what on earth are we going to do about, uh, about the current situation, how are we going to get everybody back to work and play and all of that. Yeah, great. Okay, Carl, I think there are, there are many iconic visualizations. I think me and Moritz, when we were preparing for the show, we were like, what should we talk about first? There's, <laughs> there's been so much going on. But I think probably the most iconic visual representation that we have seen from the very beginning is the famous flatten the curve. And apparently, even just this super simple graph, there are, we could talk for hours just about what is what is accurate, not accurate there, what works, what doesn't work, and also the many different little variants that we have seen around. So wh what do you think about the flatten the curve visualization? So I became really excited about the flatten the curve visualization and wrote a thread that I think uh, on Twitter, I don't know, a couple of months ago, more than that now probably, that, that uh, really launched that. Uh, into the popular consciousness, and soon we were seeing it everywhere. Um, the reason I was excited about it was you have to kind of look back to where we were and what people were talking about at the time that this 
uh, graphic started to take off. Uh, at the time, you know, that we had this sense the top epidemiologists uh, in the world had now, uh, you know, seen that, wow, we're going to be facing a global pandemic. WHO, I think, hadn't declared it one yet, but uh, but it was pretty clear with the spread in Iran and in Italy and, and other places that we weren't going to be able to control the, the pandemic and that uh, we were going to look at uh, you know, at, at least without extraordinary measures, we were going to see a large fraction of the population getting infected. And so um, there was this notion that, well, maybe we should just get it over with as quickly as possible. We were still hoping that the case fatality rate was substantially lower than we think it is now. So we were still hoping it was a tenth of a percent or lower. And so people were saying, let's just, uh, let's just, you know, I mean, why not just you know, Boris Johnson's phrase was "take it on the chin," right? And um, <laughs> which he did, which 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 he did. <laughs> so why not do that? And for those of us in the epidemiology community, I mean, we were seeing the the dramatic need for uh, intensive care uh, for people that were infected with this, and we knew that we'd massively overshoot healthcare capacity if we let this thing continue to spread at a at a you know in, at a basic reproductive number or not of three or something like that that it like it was. And so there was this intense need to sort of shift the thinking in the discussion from just thinking about who was going to get infected to thinking about the timing, the relative timing of when they were going to get infected uh, and and how that would affect healthcare capacity. And so I thought that as that started to take off, I thought, wow, this is an example of a very, very simple data visualization that is already changing minds. And, and I think there's, you know, the sort of the history of it was there was a visualization from a, a mid mid 2010s uh, report that the CDC put out about, about planning for a future pandemic, and it's a visualization about the goals of community mitigation, and it uh, shows a, a top peak without mitigation, and it shows a much smaller, you know, the lower. Um, curve with, with mitigation and, and says, you know, if one, it talks about how the goal is to delay the peak and to, and to reduce the maximum demand on the healthcare capacity. And then it also mentions uh, also reducing the total number of cases. Um, and then there were other versions that were, uh, that were drawn. And the version that I saw that really, that really, you know, I thought really clicked for people was a version that uh, was put together by an epidemiology professor, Drew Harris. And that's the red and blue diagram that many people saw. Um, and what happened in this diagram was he did one extremely simple thing that was missing in previous diagrams, and it was he added a dashed line for healthcare capacity. Mm, very prominently, right? Yeah, yeah. a very prominent line, uh, dark labeled uh, healthcare capacity. And that little change, I thought, really made it click for a lot of people that I was talking to and following, and that it wasn't just this sort of abstract, oh, we're going to lower the total, you know, the, the, the intensity of the epidemic, which, you know, kind of f felt good, but we were going to knock it below this critical level um, that was going to keep us able to actually treat people who needed to be treated. And when yeah. this happened, this was right where th things were getting really horrible in Lombardy and, and other parts of Italy. And and so we were actually you know hearing these stories about people having to triage ventilators and that kind of thing. And so that healthcare capacity line made the effect of lowering the curve really visceral in combination with these stories. Hmm. Um, and I think what's also interesting about this one, it looks a bit clunky, like it's not over-designed, and also the curves are a bit like wobbly-wonky. Right, for I better or for worse. Which I think actually helps with getting across it's just about a concept, you know, because some other exactly. graphics yeah. looked so like look perfect Gaussian yeah. curves and stylized yeah. and like fine fonts that, right. and nice soft Colors that people thought took it maybe too literal. Exactly. And, and right. right. I think we may have made a mistake in some of the ones we developed of that. Yeah. Um, so just to, and we, we should we should come back to this because there's some other nice examples where people did a good job of really mm -hmm. showing that it was just a concept. And I think I think actually that would have been a better way to go throughout. Um, Something kind of interesting happened, though, is you in between. Uh, I talked to Drew, and I believe he was inspired by a figure that uh, that Rosamund Pierce did for the Economist very early in the pandemic, which was essentially a redrawing of the original CDC mm -hmm. diagram. Um, and so, but there's an interesting thing that happened as you went from uh, the CDC diagram to the Rosamund Pierce diagram, uh, which is that the CDC 
diagram has different areas under the two curves. So the, the curve, if you uh, don't control the pandemic, has a large area, and then there's a much smaller area if you take the various control measures. Um, then as you go to Rosamund uh, Pierce's diagram in The Economist, there may be a slight difference in the area. I haven't mm. measured them, but the areas look almost exactly the same. Probably, and it's an yeah. interesting design yeah. question. And then, and then if you go and you then and then you look at Drew Harris's version, um, which I believe was you know predominantly circulated on the internet, um, it, that ver and that was the one that I wrote about and said, you know, here's a here's a here's where somebody who understood a concept and understood a little bit of data visualization drew one line, mm. namely the healthcare capacity line, and he's going to save, you know thousands or, or more <laughs> mm -hmm. lives by drawing this one line and understanding his craft. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought that was fascinating and interesting. But anyway, he carries over the uh, issue where the two curves are of approximately the same size. Um, and you know that, uh, that was a really interesting trade-off because it, it focuses your attention on just one aspect of the diagram, but then later downstream it created some confusion that we're actually still dealing with right now. It's still a uh, talking point right now. People are saying, oh, well, you know, um, mitigation doesn't reduce the total number of cases. And then they mm -hmm. often point mm -hmm. back to these diagrams. And then we have yeah. to say, yes, you know, as we've been saying for two and a half months, it does. <laughs> and here's why. And, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and so on and so on. Um, but, but there was, you know, there was an advantage to drawing that, to, to doing that, because what you, what you want to try to do with, I mean, if you want to have one diagram, one point, then uh, the CDC graph, though more accurate, you know, tries to make multiple points with a single diagram. And what, the, what this is sort of saying is like, look, even if you don't reduce the total number of cases, it's still absolutely critical, the relative timing of those. Do they all happen at the same time or are they spread out enough that we can handle them all? Mm. And so, you know, there are valid reasons for, for doing that. It's just an interesting case. And I think with this whole diagram, we've seen this a lot. It's an interesting case of a lot of downstream consequences to something that we, you know, put into place and messaged early on to get one message across and then is maybe taken too seriously later and then comes back to uh, to create further communication challenges. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but that was so interesting to follow. And still to this day, I, I, I see some Twitter discussions where people refer to the graphic and point out individual aspects of some flattening the curve graphic that I've seen, like areas being equal or the... I don't know, the, the maximum capacity just barely being reached or just slightly overshooting there, you know, that that could be totally different depending on design choices, but are not really the, the main point, right? And so it's, yeah, it's terribly so hard to get something so conceptual on the right level of abstraction, apparently. That, that's the, right. I mean, we, you know, I... I, I um, I wanted to come up with a clean version that I thought that various media outlets could use. And so I worked with a designer, um, Esther Kim, who just wrote me and volunteered her, her services to do something like this. And we, we came up with a couple of versions and we, we chose a sort of a, a very clean, uh, you know, professional looking aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and that one, and, and we released a couple of iterations of that and we tried to get some of the things that were, that we thought were wrong in previous versions, right? So we had, you know, for the things we talked, we went through a lot of rounds of this, of course, but the things we talked about were, you know, we wanted to have the, uh, we wanted to make sure that the areas under the curve were visually different. Um, our second iteration of that was better than our first. We, uh, we had, um, we wanted to show that, you know, you still might exceed healthcare capacity that just simply, you know, putting the mitigations into effect wasn't going to be a uh, complete panacea. So, so we exceed <laughs> healthcare capacity a little bit, even mm -hmm. in the case where you've got mitigated, um, you know, in later versions, we kind of tried to uh, give a better sense of the sort of time dynamic flow by putting in an arrow to the, to the progression of the curves and these kinds of things. Um, in all of this, there was one big thing that got swept under the rug. And, uh, and it's because we didn't know I think exactly what, you know, exactly what was going to happen with this pandemic. And that was the issue of like, what were the approximate volumes under the curve? Uh, were the curves, are we talking about a situation where about 70% of the population gets infected? Or are we talking about a situation where, um, you know, three or 4% of the population gets infected, right. uh, either quickly followed by rapid, um, followed by sort of rapid control or more slowly followed by, more gradual control. Um, and 
that's also caused a lot of confusion in retrospect because there's been all of this conversation about how flattening the curve is equivalent to herd immunity. And this is absolutely not what we had in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But the diagrams don't make this clear because the number of cases, you know, because these were meant to be conceptual diagrams, the number of cases, there's, that's never labeled on the axis. So the heights right. of these curves are never <laughs> labeled. So while we were always thinking that these were cases where, you, where this takes off and then, you, um, and then you act strongly to control it, um, that's not made clear in any of the diagrams. <laughs> and so if I were able to go back in time and redo this, you know, so even if the diag- even with the diagrams that I was involved in creating, I would want to somehow figure out how to message the fact that both of the curves shown are then limited not by reaching herd immunity, but limited by strong controls mm-hmm. that are that are being implemented, and uh, and because we didn't do that, because we couldn't foresee where this debate was going to go, and we didn't know what was going to happen either. I mean, back then it wasn't at all clear that we were going to be able to uh, control this pandemic at all in the West because we weren't able to. You know, I knew we wouldn't be able to institute lockdown measures on the same scale as they had in Wuhan. Um, you know, we just simply weren't able to foresee what the conversation was going to be doing right now. And mm. so we're still playing catch up in response to that and still having to go and explain <laughs> to people, no, you know, flattening the curve does not mean you're going to let it go to herd immunity. Yes, we understand that if you, uh, if you flattened the curve and then let it go to herd immunity, you'd have, you'd have a pandemic that went for two, two years. That's basic algebra that we can do, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but um, a lot of like fixing the burning plane during flight type situation. <laughs> yeah, that and I mean, the other thing that you have going on is, um, you know, we were not data visualization professionals, most of us developing these graphs. And that was also an issue. And uh, um, if there had been a way... And and it's usually going to be the case, right? I mean, it's it's these data visualizations are tools that are, that practitioners in all fields are using. There's limited amounts of training uh, for the practitioners that are their own domain experts in the on the viz side, and so they're you know they're trying to communicate things as best as they can. Then that gets out there and takes off, and at that point you can try to pull in designers like I did with Esther, but hmm. uh, it's still. Um, you know, still this would have been a conversation that would have been, you know, given the, most graphs aren't this important, but given the importance of this graph, it would have been something that if we could have, you know, if we could have sat down and had a, had a crack team of epidemiologists Mm. sitting down with a crack team of designers, we could have probably headed some of this stuff off. And then there's other stuff that we just never would have seen and we'd still be playing catch up on. And that's just the nature. And finding the right angle, like understanding what, what exactly are the points you have to communicate now and get across and what are the things people might misunderstand it's also hard for professionals so you yeah. know it's yeah. these things are always easy in hindsight but it's, it's well, super yeah, hard right. to Even do in hindsight this was, yes right yeah. exactly so, there's so, never yeah. been so much real-time testing of a visualization exactly. idea yeah. <laughs> right? it's like it's literally like you can publish and see what happens and like flatten the curve <laughs> there's 20 different designs you know or, or more and I, that's I find so fascinating to compare all these different design variations and figure out which one works in which context why you know there's animations there's simulations there's comic strips you know it's become a yeah. meme right and I yeah think right that's no, so it has and the, yeah. the you know the the it, it was it was fun to promote this and then you know within a few days see it um, you know the version I'd created or versions I other people had created you'd see them on on great big screens behind uh, politicians that yeah. were talking <laughs> it's kind of wild um, no and know, it's become and, the sort of theme in March like yeah we need to flatten yeah. the curve everybody referred to that and that's an intrinsically graphic metaphor right like it, a, a visual it, metaphor it amazing yeah it's, that, it's that really yeah, that really was yeah yeah um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's one other one I'll just mention really quickly. You know, the, you, you kind of alluded to this earlier was that the, that kind of doing more cart, a cartoon style can be quite effective. So there was a really yeah. nice, um, animated, uh, version that that was developed we'll put all of these in the in the blog post you can compare yeah, exactly. all the different uh, uh, design variations and, and sure. so this is yeah. this reminds me of that old uh you know so there was there there have been these various packages for for r and for mathematic and other things that sort of xkcdify yep. um graphs and they just you know they just they add a little bit of jitter to the axes and they yep. and and make the curves a little bit 
freehand looking and sometimes some little shading. And, and so this one takes that approach and does that very effectively. It's completely clear looking at this, that this is just a, you know, this is a back of a napkin sketch mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and you should not be using this for like forecasting or anything like that. It's a picture of a concept. And uh, I think that is more effective than the, than the sharper versions that, uh, that I developed at conveying that particular aspect. I mean, we wanted something that print and television and stuff could put up. And we, when we developed ours, the whole idea was, let's just put this out there under a Creative Commons license and make sure that every single blog, every single newspaper, every single news program that wants mm -hmm. a copy of this can just take one. They don't have to have an internal designer do it. They can yeah. take one that's fairly that's well done. Yeah. And and uh, and so we, we chose on purpose to make ours sharp in this sense. But, but I think ultimately one of the most successful ones is this card cartoon one because it mm -hmm. it carries that sense of it does a much better job of messaging that this is just a this is a concept picture not a forecast or anything like that yeah 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 i, I totally agree and that that's so interesting to to see yeah the, i think the other thing that clicked for many people was uh from the washington post the simulator they put out because looking at curves is one thing but understanding about the forces and the dynamics behind why certain like developments play out the way they do um, in a simulation and they showed yes. really well how moderate distancing, it's extensive distancing, no distancing at all, how that would lead to s different types of curves as well, right? And th 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 there was a bit that closer was... to actual outcomes and actual like data and, and you would understand a bit better, ah, this is why these curves look the way they do. And everybody became, you know, had a crash course in epidemiology, of course. It's for, been amazing. For you, these <laughs> yeah. things are clear, but we all had to catch up on, on very basic <laughs> concepts. And, and visualization is the way to do that. You know, there's another one that I saw that I really quite liked that Steve Goodrow, a colleague of mine and his collaborators put together. It was, it was in, I don't remember whether it was in the Post or the Times or one of these, but it's a, um, it's this visualization of what happens if you go outside of your bubble. And so the idea mm -hmm. is that, uh, um, you know, each of us are in these little family bubbles right now. And, uh, and we're, you know, kind of socially distancing, we're isolating within their little family groups. And then he's looking at the spread of, um, you know, how, how it's, it's, it's crash course in percolation theory, really. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and so he, um, and it's all animated. And then you, and then you can see, well, what happens if each person, if each little bubble, uh, contacts one other friend? You know, right, somewhere else. Right. And then yeah. all of a sudden you start to connect a bigger giant component. And what happens if the each each bubble connects only two friends? It's only two friends and everyone's social distancing. What could the problem possibly be? <laughs> and then you see, boom, like, you know, now all of a sudden you, you get this, you know, complete giant component in the graph. And, and uh, so I think a lot of these, these visualizations, I mean, you know, good luck trying to explain uh, percolation theory and the existence of a giant component and all that using the mathematics. <laughs> But this one little picture just makes it so clear and you can and it's interactive and you can play with it and i think that's been tremendously effective uh, yeah, communicating yeah. i have to say that playing with the simulators has been probably the most interesting experience for me as well my personal experience has been to really understand how how sensitive some parameters are right very little yes. tiny changes can have a huge impact on the results Yes. Right and the other way around, and also how they interact. I think that's th there's something special in uh, interacting in, with a visualization in a way that you can see the results of your changes in real time. That makes it somewhat visceral, and you you understand it in a sort of visceral way that I think is really really useful. That's right. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the next pandemic, we'll have much better graphics. <laughs> 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 Unfortunately, I'm pessimistic that we're going to have much better epidemiology. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the theory may be better. But if, but if, but I mean, we've been we've been screaming from the rooftop for decades, or something and, like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah people and, and of course, need it proof. Happen. They need tangible proof until they take it serious. It's the same. Yeah, with right. Many right. Other well, I think that yeah, crisis, hopefully but, people will take it seriously yeah. in the future. Yeah, moving forward in time. So we had flattened the curve. We had the Washington Post simulator mid-March, I would say, which which um, played a big role. Um, mm -hmm. We had fantastic coverage from Financial Times team, John Bon Murdoch and team. I think they did daily updates mm -hmm. for six weeks now or something like this. So amazing. Yeah, those uh, were tremendously work. important. Yeah, and kept refining their like their output, their methodology. Uh, also really, I think, explained well the data choices they made in terms of what made it into certain charts or when they were ready to do certain types of charts. So I think they were also super 
thoughtful in terms of what type of information is how reliable at which point in time and so on and yeah definitely yeah definitely. and I, my Carl, do you know that did they sort of pioneer that logarithmic wave like wave like chart where you would start each country you would align all the countries by their 100th or 50th uh, case And then do a log scale in the vertical axis, and then compare the trajectories. Is that something? Has that been around before, or was that invented now for COVID? Do you know, do you, know, do you, have <laughs> you know, I don't know if it was invented for yeah. COVID. There's a there's a pretty interesting issue there, though, around the um, the aligning yeah. of of charts. So mm. there's been yeah. there was a there was a ton of fighting that went on, uh, and it still still continues to some degree. Um, <laughs> but a ton of arguing about whether or not one should normalize the number of cases by population size. Right. And so the what was at stake was that if you do normalize by population size, then as long as you take China off the graph, the U.S. looks really good. Um, <laughs> if you don't normalize by population size, then the U.S. looks the worst, yeah. um, whether you put China on the graph or not. And, uh, and so... Um, so depending on you know this is i mean this has been one of the huge challenges and it and of course trickles or more roars through into into the data visualization is that this entire pandemic has been so heavily politicized in ways that none of us expected yeah the we always thought that if the big one ever hit which it has now that people would pull together and be trying to figure out how to fight it not that the very existence of the pandemic would be a political issue, uh, which of course it has been in the U.S. and the U.K., and uh, you know, and the severity and and is the de what's the death rate like, and it's just a flu or all of this business. Um, so there's been all of this argument that's really drawn, that's really based not in you know about how to visualize things, that's based not in uh, you know aesthetic or um, or kind of you know data revelation concerns but just based in pure politics mm. and then you know people who want to say look the u.s is doing an amazing job in the response and and you know the why are the democrats yeah, you start with the conclusion and then try and find and, the best and, and then try to reason that, that illustrates right? your conclusion that you had all along right um, and so yeah. there's been so there's been a ton of this in data viz uh -huh. and 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 Of course, you know, um, famously, the White House put out this graphic where like, <laughs> they did this really funny uh, cubic curve fit. Oh that, my gosh, you know, that the, was the, truly even remarkable. from eyeballing does not even you know compute. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, they've got a they've got a cubic with a second derivative that changes uh, sign three times, which is impossible. <laughs> Someone pointed out that this could be an exponentiated cubic, in which case it would actually that would actually be possible. But yeah. uh, maybe it's but a mathematical any, any, innovation. <laughs> <laughs> and it, 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 I was impressive. Um, I I, th I I had thought it was a cubic with you know with the addition of magic marker at the, to kind of round out the tail. But I think I think perhaps it's an exponentiated cubic in that case. Uh, it's still a completely ridiculous thing to do when trying to model the pandemic and and the idea that uh, you know the U.S.'s pandemic projection is the default uh, fit a trend line in Excel mm. is horrifying. Um, But coming back to the population question, yes, now should we yes, normalize so by population? Or not? Yeah, right. So, right now, so this is this is a big question, and uh, I think it, you know, it of course partly depends on what question you want to know the answer to. If you want to know, you know, how many cases are there in the U.S., then obviously you don't normalize. If you want mm -hmm. to know how likely am I to know someone who dies, then maybe you do want some kind of normalized version. Uh, but and but the thing that's really sort of key here is that there there are different ways to normalize. Um, and what you need to do if you're going to allow comparisons of the severity of the pandemic, you need to align the uh, start points of the different yeah. um, of the of the different countries, so that the you start not from a constant number but from a constant f frequency. Uh, so the idea is that I mean you could think about think about like you know how fast is a wildfire burning, and if you take a wildfire that's burning through an enormous you know n national forest 
and you normalize by the size of the national forest, <laughs> even if it's burning very, very fast, it'll seem to be burning slowly. Yeah. The same wildfire in the 100-acre woods is going to seem to be ripping through. But of course, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is like what's happening at the perimeter of the fire, where at, at the, where, right where it's expanding. It doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, the severity isn't influenced by how far it can go in the future. Mm. Um, and mm. so what you want to do is you want to, you want to kind of get some way of picturing how fast is this thing expanding. And so a way that you can do that is you can uh, align these graphs so you, it's perfectly fine to normalize, but if you do align them um, not at a fixed number of cases, because that's a that's a non-normalized alignment, mm-hmm. but align them at a fraction. Align them when uh, one person in 10,000 is infected. Mm-hmm. Uh, start there, or one person in 100,000, or whatever number you want to start at, one person in a million. Um and align them all at that point, oh, and then you can, mm-hmm. and then you can get the. Uh, so you, so if you have a, if you use a normalized graph, use a normalized alignment. If you use a non-normalized graph, use a non-normalized alignment, mm-hmm. and and that's a way to sort of get the best of both worlds, um, so that you can go ahead and do that normalization if you want it. Uh, if you do that, then you will no longer get this result where the United States seems to be uh, much much better than everyone else just because it's big. Right. Right. Yeah. So so many subtleties to to really think of there, right? Carl, uh, I my intuition regarding regarding normalization has been, and I'm, I'm wondering if I can uh, check this with you live right now. <laughs> my intuition sure, was like, I I kept thinking about thinking in terms of countries doesn't make much sense because when I look at how cases spread out in a country, it, they tend to be. Um, you typically have something going on in a very small region, right? And very right. little going on in the rest. So mm. uh, one can claim that, of course, countries matter because they have different laws, different rules, different way they react. But on the other hand, I think it's also, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the virus doesn't care too much about borders, right? And it tends to spread in this kind of like strong clustered way it tends to be really strong in a small area and then much less in other areas even if you are within a country is definitely true for Italy for the US and for other countries i guess i think that's exactly the right intuition and i think that when you combine because that is what the virus is doing um and and it's, your intuition is also right that then it, given that it's doing that aggregating up to countries uh, of very different sizes creates kind of misleading perspectives. So I worked with uh, Ben Kerr, who's a professor in the, in, um, the Department uh, of Biology here at the University of Washington, and he came up with a nice visualization that I can give you a link to a Twitter yeah. thread, where we show that, uh, that we, sh- we show a set of, uh, almost exactly what you just described, Enrico, we show a set of different kind of smaller uh, outbreaks, you know, each of which running essentially by itself within a larger country. And what, and, and if you then plot these on one of these, uh, on, on one of these normalized graphs and you don't align it properly, then you have this, you have this uh, country where the epidemic is spreading. You have these, you have these different outbreaks in the country um, that are occurring at different times. And so then the country is doing better than any of its subregions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. When you when you when you do this normalization, and then once you align it correctly, then you see, you know then you see that they're all doing the same. Um, but uh, but but I think that's right, and that's kind of that's the what you've put your finger on is sort of the underlying biology of why this kind of alignment is is necessary, and yeah. and why you know kind of just taking the size of a country, most of which hasn't been hit yet, you can't just use that and divide something out and say this country is doing well. I mean, I think that's generally one thing that has been hard to grasp in the beginning is that absolute numbers are much less important than velocity or like change rate, right? And that's 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 exactly right. Yeah, took a while uh, to wrap everybody's head around. Well, I mean, exponential, (laughs) understanding exponentials is just really hard, right? I mean, it's like, this is, you know, this is why... uh, this is why in that famous old old story where somebody wants a grain of rice on each square of the chessboard, right? <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. why the king gets gets taken in. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're yeah. just really not good at thinking about that. And unfortunately, this is, uh, you know, it's the same sort of thing. This is the exact same kind of exponential process. Yeah, yeah. Th- there's a wider issue here, which I think has been super interesting to think about. And, and it has been interesting to also see everybody's reactions to, to the pandemic and everybody having to stay home and 
I think many people turn to the numbers just to make sense yeah. of what's going on, like just for therapeutic reasons or also <laughs> because I think many people like us who work in tech and have other expertises, but they can work with numbers and with curves felt like, oh, maybe I can sort of have a contribution here and, and you know, publish some charts myself or make arguments based on numbers or get into modeling, <laughs> you know, like yeah, there yeah, are yeah. a few like medium thick pieces from Definitely not epidemiologists who were explaining yes, yes, we to those. epidemiologists what all the things they're getting wrong, uh, apparently. Mm -hmm. So uh, what has been your experience there? I mean, you've been in the middle of a few like Twitter fights about all these things. Like, right, Are you going out of this like saying, oh, listen, folks, you should really just let the experts speak? Or do you think it's actually good that people start to work with the data, even if they make mistakes? Like, where, where do you land here? I think this is, this is a sort of unprecedented crisis and we need all hands on deck. Yeah. And yeah. so there's so much talent out there. Uh, the thing though, that you do need when you have all hands on deck <laughs> is, uh, you know, there's a guy who's really good at pulling up rigging and that guy shouldn't insist on piloting the ship. And that's uh, <laughs> so, so in, in, indeed, you know, come, come up and, and, and help raise the sails. But, uh, you know, yeah, just cause you, you know, once, I don't know, you know, s sailed a little dinghy doesn't mean you're ready to <laughs> take over the wheel from the captain and that he's an idiot. Um, so, so, so there's this balance of, uh, you know, so I think, I mean, having everybody working on this, having people coming up with clever ideas that are outside of the box, even the fact that you, that people don't have epidemiological training can be a real asset mm -hmm. at, at times, because of course we have certain ways that we've been taught to think about things and, and they leave us with some blind spots. So all of that's been very, very powerful uh, to have people that are not coming from within that community come and, and say, look, I want to help. And then there's just right and wrong ways to do it. I mean, so of course you always have these bad actors that have essentially political motivations. They've already decided the conclusion and they're just going to put together whatever story they can and say, oh, epidemiologists are stupid. They don't realize that there's exponential growth or something, you know, just <laughs> complete non-starter. Um, you see an awful lot of that. Um, that's not helpful, obviously. You know, there's, you see other people that, um, you know, are well, are, are well-meaning, um, and have, you know, are always known more stats than the other people in their hedge fund. And so they figure they also know more stats than any epidemiologist. And, 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 and then they come in with a little bit of the, um, arrogance that may come with the, with the culture. Um, and that can be, you know, frustrating. It gets problematic if they, if this stuff sort of takes off. And I'm thinking, you know, of, uh, you know, the kind of, in its very worst form, you can get sort of Elon Musk types that are just spreading complete bollocks <laughs> at the, and then, you know, essentially being worshipped by a certain, you know, segment of tech bros that love their Teslas and so on. Yeah. Um, also in Germany, like last two weeks, the Big conspiracy theories really like kicked in, and like the oh yeah yeah so okay <laughs> yeah I mean there's been all of that, um, but then you know on the other hand you know like so there there's there's all these people that are not really epidemiologists you know there's there's this this uh, group led by Uriel on very good systems biologist in in Israel um, that came up with some really creative outside of the box ways to to sort of start to get people back to school. I've kind of gone back and forth with them about some iterations of their ideas. One of them, I think, is just extremely clever, and I'd never heard from an epidemiologist. And it's like, well, look, mm -hmm. this thing, this disease, uh, you know, it, it takes about five days before you, from when you get it to when you become transmissible. And, and you know, sometime around then, usually a couple of days after that, you start to show symptoms. So let's uh, stagger the weeks that the kids are at school. So let's have kids at school split the kids in half, have half the kids at school one week. Mm -hmm. Any kid that gets infected that week will will show symptoms and become transmissible in the second in the second week when they're at home. And uh, and just stagger back and forth like that. And that way you'll never have somebody, some kid getting it at school and then, you know, going all the way through to being transmissible at school. Uh, because by the time they're back at school again, they, you know, will have either gone through the course of the disease or they will have, you know, sort of shown the symptoms and you'll be able to keep them home. Um, so this was just this creative idea yeah. that, I, that mm -hmm. I'd never, you know, they started out with other ideas that I didn't think worked as well. And then, and then they came to this one and, and so that's a perfectly good idea of, you know, good example of really smart people coming in and doing that. On the directly visualization side, I worked with a guy uh, named David Yu, who's a, 
hockey analyst, and he had been looking at the WA, at the IHME model, which maybe we can talk about a little bit, one of the models that was used really heavily in uh, kind of planning the U.S. response. Uh, and uh, rather than trying to do his own forecasting, he just wanted to understand what this model was doing. And he reached out to me and said, hey, this I've been watching this model, and and it seems to be doing these weird things. Do you understand what it's doing? And I said, no, I don't really understand. And then what he'd been doing was keeping logs of what that model's predictions were every day, given the data that it had at the time. You know, instead of just giving, you know, they were updating every few days. And, and so all I was ever seeing was their instantaneous snapshot. He was keeping their whole record of what data it had and then what, and what predictions it made, given those data, and then how those predictions changed, given the new data. And it was a really nice bit of model forensics, if you will. And so he's put together a really good... Uh, website now that that automates all of this called covid-projections.com that lets you go and actually look how various models are performing over time and how they're updating and gives you a much deeper understanding of what these uh, what these forecasting models are doing and it's really just because he was uh, able to do a great job of wrangling the data from all of this do some uh, I thought quite nice visualization um, and provide insights so that now all the professional epidemiologists that I know who are trying to understand all these models and predictions and what to go with are are working based on his uh, on his contributions. So I think there's a lot of room for for people to come in and 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 make really useful contributions. And you know this may be a little bit of uh, you know credentialism or something on my part. I personally think it works better if people come and do that uh, if they then reach out to epidemiologists and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Am I missing anything here, et cetera? And the alternative, of course, is get yourself a Medium account and write about how all epidemiologists are stupid and we should defund the, the field. Um, but, uh, but anyway, that's plenty of both to go around. Yeah, I was personally a little taken aback by there have been a few articles out there where the basically, I call it the shut the fuck up movement, where the, the whole argument was you shouldn't even attempt to to publish anything, which I, I find it a little extreme, honestly. Yeah, no, I think that is a mistake. I mean, I think it's it's. Um, I mean, obviously, this is a it is a all hands on deck situation, and within the epidemiology community, we're struggling with you know, first of all, having anybody care about what we do um, here because it's you know usually w- what we've been doing for a long time has been um, dealing with problems that people care about a lot, but they're somewhere else. Um, as, but now sort of every person in the United States or in the UK or wherever it is, uh, you know, this has completely turned all of our lives upside down. So everybody cares all the time. And so we're dealing with that. And then we're also dealing with the fact that this all has been so heavily politicized. And so people have gotten really frustrated, yeah, particularly. Which is a shame, honestly. <laughs> it's, it's a dreadful shame. It's terrible. Well, it's uh, so, so useless. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> So people have gotten so frustrated with the bad actors, I think, that uh, that yeah. some of the shut-the-fuck movement yeah, uh, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. is coming from, from that frustration. But but not all of it. And then, um, oh yeah, anyway, that's that's the way, <laughs> that's what fields do. They protect themselves. Yeah. Okay, I, I think we have to wrap up soon. Um, yeah, anything else to say? Oh, boy. I think boy. we could I mean, go on for, for, should, yeah, for a few yeah, days, right? Right, we should do it, right, totally. Um, I... You know, I guess the, uh, the the one thing, I'll just put an idea out there and then people can think about it. Um, one, th- one thing that, that uh, we've talked about a lot in, in epidemiology is how you communicate about risk and uncertainty. Mm. And, and it's a real big issue for us because we want to help people realize that risks are on their way, but we also don't want to lose credibility by being the boy that cried wolf. So mm. you take something like the 2009 pandemic of... Um, of H1N1 swine flu. And at some point we all said, hey, look, uh, you know, this is real. There's a, there's a new flu pandemic coming. Flu pandemics are bad. This is going to be a problem. And we were right that there was a pandemic coming and it infected pandemic numbers of people. That's the definition of a pandemic is just the, the scope, not the severity. Um, but it w- did not turn out to be severe. It turned out to be less severe than an or- ordinary seasonal flu. And that we just got very lucky there. Um, but there was some soul searching afterwards about whether we'd sort of cried wolf because, you know, we said, oh, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be really serious. This is a you know major health event. And then it turned out essentially not to be, um, even though lots of people were infected. And so we think a lot about how do you communicate these kinds of risks? How do you best express uncertainties? Uh, we hadn't done enough thinking about how do you do that in this extremely politically charged environment where uh 
if you specify ranges of things, you're not going to be seen as interesting or as credible or as worthy of, of news time as someone who comes in and says, oh, this is going to be the worst thing ever. The Chinese are hiding all the deaths. It's going to be 10% mortality. Half of America is going to be dead. Or alternatively say, you know, this isn't even as bad as a common cold. The Democrats are hoaxing us to try to get Trump out of office. The people who come in with these strong, certain, and usually fringe numbers are the ones that are getting all the all the all the press on social attention. media yeah. and mm. uh, and so so i think we haven't done enough thinking about about how to message uncertainty while simultaneously dealing with the issue that people don't want uncertainty told to them they want certain answers um so there've just been a lot of issues about how do you talk about uncertainty and how do you show uncertainty how do you visualize uncertainty in in graphs and um so, you know, when we look at the forecasting sites, for example, they all have different ways of trying to show cones of uncertainty into the future. Um, and so without going into a lot of detail, there, there's been sort of very variable success, I think, in, in doing that. One thing that when you put up uncertainty ranges, people tend to think of those as being something like, um, you know, confidence intervals on what happens in the future. And so the, mm. the upper bound would sort of be a worst case and the lower bound would be a best case. And so if you take something like the IHME model that has been very widely used in the United States to, to set U.S. policy um, and, until, until it started giving numbers lower than we were actually getting and making Trump look bad, they, they used their uncertainty ranges for something different. They were kind of a technical uh, uncertainty range uh, for a curve fit that they were making that had some very strange properties that, uh, you know, instead of having a cone of uncertainty that expands out in time the way a hurricane trajectory does, they have this cone of uncertainty that actually shrinks towards zero because they're fitting the curve to the case to a case where this has completely gone away at some time in the future. And so you have these backwards cones of uncertainty that people didn't really know how to interpret uh, quite understandably because we're not used to seeing such things. And so I think if uh, it would have been very good to think through more carefully um, the impact that our visualizations have on the way that people interpret uh, the uncertainty that we're facing. So, I mean, um, uh, early on, for example, there were, uh, in, in, in um, Washington State, there were uh, going to be no deaths uh, today with 95% probability under this model. Well, that's not mm -hmm. the case anymore, mm -hmm. right? Um, <laughs> and, and indeed, 70% um, of the time, the uh, actual um, number of deaths has laid outside of the the 95% uh, uncertainty range for the IHME model. So it wasn't really confidence interval. So what that, just simply drawing these pictures out, uh, once you are dealing with something that has such enormous policy implications, um, actually shapes the way that people make life or death decisions about things. And so after this is all over, we can go back and think more about how do we use the grammar of visualization to convey messages about uncertainty, which I know is a big area in visualization and one that I don't know a lot about, but um, it's something that we definitely need to figure out how to keep moving forward with. Yeah, the, the good news is that there are some really good researchers out there who are working exactly in, in this area. Right. So, I've seen some of that, but I'm yeah. just, I'm so far from an expert and it's, you know, when things slow down, I need to learn more about that. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Well, <laughs> again, <Yeah. fast. laughs> we could go on forever, but for sure, yeah. <laughs> Carl, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for explaining all these things, but especially thanks for being such a, such an active and great voice on, on, on Twitter, social media and other, other sources has been, at least I have to say personally, it's been really useful being able to get information from you. Oh, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great to talk to you guys again. And you're right. I mean, this topic, like, there are so many amazing, you know, theses or whatever to be written from this. Mm -hmm. I think there's a book in the change the curve, the flatten the curve part, and, <laughs> and uh, there's there's a very good thesis in every other topic we've discussed. Yeah. And <laughs> lots of opportunities to learn for everybody. Yeah. I think in yeah. these extreme uh, situations. Yeah. yeah, I have to say it's very humbling. I, I honestly, mm. I'm I'm no longer certain on any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you know. I you know there, we 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 we've been joking with the uh, you know there's people been joking about the sort of Dunning Kruger 
effect, and there's a pa paper about the Dunning, uh, you know, DKE, DKE 19 as this parallel pandemic to, to, to COVID 19 and, and so on. But I, I sometimes think that I kind of got myself right into the into the sweet spot for that as far as data is concerned, right? So it's like, you know, with the whole problem with, with, with DKE is if you know a bit, then you think you know a lot and, you, and you're dangerous. And so, uh, um, you know, we complain in epidemiology about people who know just a little bit, just enough to be dangerous. But I think I may have sort of gotten myself into that spot with visualization. I say, oh, I know how to do this. It's like, I, you know, I've thought about this. So I'm not a professional, but who, who would need to be a professional? <laughs> so anyway, I, I find myself like, uh, you know, repeatedly um, thinking, oh, well, how hard can it be to visualize this well? And then putting things out there and then trying to, trying to, trying to clean up after myself in real time. Yeah, yeah. Carl, I actually forgot to ask you, is your book out yet? Oh, oh! The so the book bullshit. comes Maybe out on August. Say that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Thank you. Uh, book <laughs> comes out on August fourth, uh, and um, yeah. So it's you know it's a, it's it's strange because we wrote it pre-COVID, so it feels yeah, like exactly. it, it feels like it belongs to a different time. But on the other <laughs> hand, uh, historical. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Um, but on the other hand, it uh, you know the one of the things the book says is that if people don't understand data visualization and don't understand how to think about numbers, then we're headed toward a major crisis. So um, I guess it's, uh, yeah. I, I guess it's now casting or something, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thanks so much. Great guys. Carl. Thank you so yeah. much. Good to talk to you and, uh, and I'll catch up soon. Take care. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey folks. Thanks for listening to data stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is crowdfunded and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash datastories where we publish monthly previews of upcoming episodes for our supporters. Or you can also send us a one-time donation via PayPal at paypal.me slash datastories. Or as a free way to support the show, if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be very helpful as well. And here's some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so follow us there for the latest updates. We have also a Slack channel where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, go to our homepage at datastory.es, and there you'll find a button at the bottom of the page. And there you can also subscribe to our email newsletter if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish a new episode. That's right. And we love to get in touch with our listeners. So let us know if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know any amazing people you want us to invite or even have any project you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Don't hesitate to get in touch. Just send us an email at mail at datastory.es. That's all for now. Hear you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories.